Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 65 for November 9th, 2014. On this week's show, we're going to tell you, or teach you, I should say, how to kill your loved ones with cyanide. It's a good it's a good topic. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to learn about twins and the connection to their microbiome. We're going to learn why plants don't get cancer. And if we have time, we're going to talk about why the government doesn't want uh, labs to make Ebola airborne, which uh, may actually sound logical, but it actually may be a bad thing at the same time. So, um, <laughs> the show is brought to you by Thermoscient. I'm just kidding. We don't have any sponsors. Um, <laughs> wouldn't that be awesome? I, I, my mind was exploding right there. <laughs> like what? <laughs> well, as you you no doubt can hear, uh, we want to welcome back Christian Copley Salem to the show. Welcome back, Yay. Christian. If you're new to the show, Christian is a graduate student in cell molecular pharmacology and physiology at University of Nevada, Reno. No, I'm not. And, uh, oh, there he is. He's back. He's back. Yeah, I do. I haven't put that one on ice for a while, but I brought him back. (laughs) We also have with us uh, Carolina Balkenbush, our registered dietitian out of Las Vegas, Nevada. Hello. Hello. She also has a blog, which I always forget to bring up, carolinaskitchen.com. Is that correct? That is right. And uh, tons of cool, fun recipes. She's our little gastro expert that's doesn't make it sound very nice makes it sound like a bowel disorder or something no she has great food on her website carolina's kitchen is are you still updating it i am uh i haven't the past few weeks since i was out of town but i am actually planning to post a recipe today so you guys are in for a treat i love it speaking of recipes how did the sous vide ribs turn I know. out? Well, we'll talk about that in a second here. So <laughs> I, I, I forgot to introduce myself last week. So uh, to make up for it, I'll do it twice today. Um, <laughs> my name's Scott Barnett. I, too, am a PhD candidate in cell molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada, Reno, in the lab right next to Christians. We see each other every single day. And that's me. Uh, Christian, welcome Yo. back. Um, you've been, you've been gone a couple weeks, but it's not through, it's not because you've, you've been lazy or just didn't like us anymore. (laughs) I mean, that's what, that's what I'm telling you. Um, (laughs) no, um, my, uh, my mom had cancer and had cancer for a while. She had, um, cervical cancer, which at 60, 67, cervical cancer is not really a big deal because you just take out your cervix because I mean. You know, not babies really are using probably it. not in your wheelhouse at that point. <laughs> um, and uh, so she had that done, had it taken out. She had the cancer uh, radiation therapy to, because what they do is once they take it out, if the cancer cells have have moved through the wall of the cervix, they can then metastasize all over your body. So what they do is they remove the cervix and then they do focused radiation to try to kill any cancer cells that may have like been hovering around in the area um to prevent metastasis it like increases your chances of living from like 70 to 98 percent or something ridiculous um and she had a lot of other health problems like her she didn't make her red blood cells properly and then when she did she killed them um hemolytic anemia is what it's called so doing all of these things was hard on her she couldn't just go have chemo or go have radiation or whatever it was always a, a drama with her blood and uh so a few months ago, they found spots on her diaphragm, which is a really weird place to find um, 
spots, and they thought it was mesothelioma, which is really awful. Um, turns out it wasn't. It was just the metastasized um, cervical cancer. So her she was 2% <laughs> that the radiation didn't stop that. And then um, it eventually killed her, which would have been a week ago Tuesday. No, two weeks ago Tuesday. Yeah, two weeks ago. Um, and that's a really awful way to go. And it makes you really want, and this is just, you know, my own personal opinion. It makes you really want to be able to, like, Oregon, you can help, you know, euthanasia and stuff. I am now the, the biggest believer in that. Because what you do is, at some point, most of the time they go unconscious. I talked to the, the nurse, and mom went unconscious a couple of days after I got there. And she never became conscious again. Um, you're giving her, like, milligram doses of lorazepam every couple of hours. And what is, what's the purpose of that? Lorazepam is an anti-anxiety drug, but it's also a benzodiazepine, which means that it just puts you to sleep. Right. I mean, she's getting two milligrams of lorazepam every four hours. And it's also a respiratory depressant. It, it does a lot of things, but it, for her, it was anxiety. Because, uh-huh. um, you know, you, you tell someone you're going to be dead in three months. It tends to make them stressed out. Um, yeah. So they're giving her this, and eventually it's just to keep them sedated. Because um, two milligrams, normally a daily dose is 0.5 milligrams. So we're giving her two milligrams every four hours. She's not, she's not going to wake up. Um, and then you, you basically sit and watch them dehydrate to death because they're not drinking. Um, and that's how you... you let a cancer patient go in a lot of cases, especially when they're on it. Dharma, my wife, Dharma, she did hospice for, for several years, uh, a while back. And she's just essentially described exactly what you're saying. And this is true too, for if you're 92 and you're dying of natural quote unquote, natural causes, it, it takes a week in or, or two or three. And it's just really drawn out. She's in the exact same ball camp of you, which is like, why can't we, and this humanely at a certain point. Right. When they go to unconscious and you're intentionally keeping them there because right. there's nothing you can do, like waking them up is just mean. Right. And why are we why are we spending so much time it, it took like you said, it took five days, four days, for her to die of not drinking. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. Um but so you know that was it, it you know, it was hard and blah 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 blah. And, uh, but it was interesting, um, talking to the nurses, they had, they do all kinds of crazy stuff on hospice care that I had no idea. She had a musical therapist. This is, this is totally a first world problem, but, um, (laughs) the lady would come in she was a really cool girl and she would come in and she would sing to my mom for like an hour, twice a week. Um, they wrote a song together. This is my mother. My mother's like, hey, I'm dying of cancer, but I'm going to write a song. I'm going to do all this poetry stuff and blah, blah, blah. She was, she was crazy. But um, yeah, they wrote a song together, which, of course, the lady sang at my mother's wake funeral, whatever the heck it turned out to be. Um, so, there, I mean, there was a lot of cool medical um, stuff. And they did, you know, they, you could call them at 2 in the morning and they were there. Huh. Yeah, it's crazy. I've always said like that's that's how like if I if I figure out I'm sick, I, you you don't appreciate like 
you just want to be home. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah. do I want to be at a hospital with 40 tubes? No, I'm going. <laughs> Why don't I just be comfortable and be with my family? You know, like I think hospice is for most people really the way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really cool. I mean, for what it was, it was a I was really appreciative of them and all of the we called them at all kinds of crazy hours. I mean, things would happen and I'm like, oh, my gosh, is this supposed to happen? And you call them and they're like, I'll be right there. And they come over and they're like, yeah, it's totally normal. You're like, ah. <laughs> so you could have told me that on the phone, like, <laughs> right. uh, but I mean, it was, it was really, it was really cool having them there. So it was not a bad experience as that kind of experience can go, I guess is what I was going to say with that. So well, I'm sure I speak for we our, all of our listeners. We're very sorry, Christian, but we're also very, very happy to have you back. Sweet. Sweet. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Um, Jesus, pretty hard to segue into short words from that, isn't it? You know what, Scott? It? It's your turn to bring us down. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm always bringing us up. It is your I'm time. Looking, I'm looking at our list here, and I'm like, so wait, I'm supposed to talk about ribs now? I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> it's probably good. It's probably good. <laughs> uh, I'll be very brief because Caroline wants to know about it. As, uh, as we all know, the first rule of sous vide cooking is that you must talk about sous vide cooking incessantly without <laughs> any break, and I, I'm not going to be the exception to that rule. I'm doing a 72-hour sous vide um, of beef short ribs, which basically dissolves the collagen. You cook it for – I think we've talked about sous vide on the show, haven't we? Uh, yes, yes. Just, as, probably about as often as we've talked about the microbiome. <laughs> so people know. <laughs> you hold it at a constant low temperature for a long time. I'm cooking these ribs for three days, um, which is crazy. Um, and, and they won't be ready till tomorrow night, and so we'll let you know from there. But uh, go sous vide. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'm very excited. Uh, it's very weird just to have something sitting on your stove for three days cooking at like <laughs> something that is not much hotter than your coffee is. Um, and, wow. yeah, I understand why people are... <laughs> suspicious of this but uh, I'll let you know how it goes yeah that's awesome can't wait to hear about it because that brisket that I had in Austin last week that was smoked for 17 hours and it was the best damn thing I've ever had so I'm sure this will be and do you un- this will be at least on par with that doesn't it make you wonder whoever's had real top-end Texas brisket it's it's transcendent it, it, it is it is an- I, I mean I wasn't big on barbecue just like you said I you know take it or leave it it wasn't great but this this barbecue experience was something else. Like yeah. I, I probably ate about a pound and a half of meat myself. Why don't we have and then that here? I had no appetite the rest of the week. <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know why we can't export that. It's not like the humidity is just right in Texas, and you can't do it somewhere else. And for some reason, they do it right. Uh, well, okay. So so another thing that Texas has that Vegas doesn't really have is a service called Uber. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's Uber. Like the taxi it's here thing. now officially. Yeah, yeah, Vegas not so much because it's it's sort of like a mafia thing going on here. Yeah, where uh, <laughs> taxi cab drivers do not like Uber. Uber is a a, a service, a business that is in competition with taxi cab companies. Uh, it's a lot less expensive. It's cleaner. The people are nicer. We had a really good experience with it in Texas. But in Vegas, what taxi cab drivers have been doing is summoning an Uber driver, getting in their car, and then having them drive to a location where there are a bunch of masked men with baseball bats waiting for them (laughs) so yeah so intimidation uh has kept uber (laughs) pretty much out of business down here in vegas hopefully that changes um but anyway the reason i bring that up is maybe that's what's happening with uh, barbecue joints in vegas too in nevada and outside of texas maybe texan Mafia. Barbecue experts are keeping the exportation down. <laughs> it really would be a shame if you moved to Las Vegas, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, 
Um, all right. <laughs> Just a thought. That's yes. awesome. <laughs> Uh, oh, I wanted, before we get too deep into the show, uh, as you all know, if you write us a nice email, we will talk about you because we really appreciate it. So this one is from listener Laura. She said, hi, Scott and Carolina. I am loving your duo broadcast. This no. Co- I know. I'm so happy. <laughs> this community of pharmacists from New Jersey is a big fan of your podcast. It keeps my brain active and um, active in the sciency realm. Keep up the excellent work. Hope to hear Christian and Dell's dulcet tones soon again. Nerdily yours, Laura. Thank you, Laura. Oh, and I'm glad we get to uh, improve the quality of New Jersey just a little bit. Just, just a little bit. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, well, hopefully we'll get Dell back sooner than later. Uh, he's selling an old house. He moved into his new. He's got a one-month-old baby. We've talked about it before. Dell is a busy, busy boy, but uh, we do miss Dell too. Mm-hmm. Yes. But we get well, thank Christian. you for that nice email. That's great. Yeah. Thanks, Laura. Yeah. yeah, thank you. So, 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 so. Um, <sighs> I, I have what may be a, a brief new segment, by the way, which I'm calling Pop Quiz. Ooh. No. <laughs> now, if you know the answer to this, don't chime in. What, what fun is that? <laughs> well, I just want to give the, the people who don't know yet a chance to, to, to mull it over in their brain. Which... Which uh, organ, which cells, group of cells in the body produce more unique proteins than any other group of cells in the body? What has the most diverse number of unique proteins? Think about that in your brain. Do either of you know this off the top of your head? I have a mm. suspicion. But you don't know from, from reading it? No. Okay, well, Carolina seems the least sure, so I definitely want her to go first. The liver, the eyeball, the tongue, the brain, the heart, the foot. What are you thinking? Oh, good. You're giving me a multiple choice. Uh, <laughs> the right answer wasn't in that list, by the way. Fuck. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> you going, brain? I don't know. The, I don't know. I got nothing. Is someone dying in someone's house? Oh, oh, sorry. I should probably mention, I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old staying with me this week. My dad, uh, his wife, and his two kids are visiting from Poland. They just arrived last night at midnight, so if we hear noises in the background, those are small children waking up. (laughs) That's what they sound like when they wake up? It's, it sounded like a, like some sort of like wolf mourning the loss of a loved one. It did. It did. Like a wolf funeral. Well, after being on a plane for about 24 hours, it's kind of what you sound like. Oh, my goodness. That's true. Carolina, I'm going to push you into guessing. Give me give me an organ. Oh, I, uh, but there's so many options. Organ? Can you give me a hint? Uh, no. Uh. <laughs> yeah. It will be we'll funny be when you're wrong. I'll- uh, yeah, okay. It will be the intestine. <laughs> the intestine. Uh, I think that's not a bad guess. <laughs> so, Christian, what, what's your guess? Uh, like a major organ, not just like a, an organ, uh, like a body system? Uh, yeah, we can go body system. That's probably a better way to describe Because uh, I would have guessed like cells of the immune system. You're wrong. Yeah, um, you should. <laughs> <laughs> It's like the testicles. Oh, that oh. makes sense. Now, you might have thought the brain, um, because it's pretty much our most sophisticated organ, but it's not. Uh, the brain only makes 318 unique proteins. Now, we can talk about post-translation modifications, splice variants, all that fun stuff, but if we're actually talking like encoded proteins. We're looking at 318 
in the brain, and we are looking at 999 known ones in the testicles. You wow. think they could have rounded okay, up to 1,000. Okay, smart guy. Well, what about a woman's body? They actually suspected that the ovaries would be equally complex, but the fact is they were looking at these proteins being developed, and the woman's eggs are made as she is a fetus. And if you did not know this, you're, you're, you have a full complement of eggs once you're born. You don't develop those after you're born. So... For whatever, however they did the study, they actually wanted to to look at them being developed over time. So I think sperm, as we all know, spermatogenesis happens continually in a male. So I think they could look at this life cycle. Um, point being, they thought it was the ovaries, but it, they didn't think it'd be ethical to look because you would have to look at it in a growing fetus. So. All right, I'll accept that. Anything. Another fun fact: <laughs> almost half of our genes, which there are about 8,800, 8,900 uh, actual genes. Over almost half at any given time are active in any cell, which is pretty phenomenal considering your genome has to make, you know, dozens if not hundreds of subvariants of cell types. Every single one of those is using half your genome at any given time. It tells you how much redundancy is there is in the system, you know, for cellular respiration and a lot of these pathways are used differently in the cells. So so pretty cool. Half your half your genome at any given time. All right. Pop quiz segment. See? Look at that. Yeah, we both. I like it. I uh, like it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it needs to come with a with a noise too. <laughs> like, I think when you announce the pop quiz, we go ow. <laughs> pop quiz. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll work on that. We will. So, uh, with that though, uh, uh, let's let's just push right into science blast. Science blast. What the? What is an ERP? <laughs> an ERP? That's a science gun ERP. Oh, okay. There's more than one science gun. ERP. It's science gun ERP. All right. Never. I don't think I've heard that one. So, uh, as occasionally happens, but not that often, Christian and Carolina both stumble across the same story. And as you all are aware at this point, we don't really talk a lot before the show. So this is bound to happen. <laughs> this is... I know it sounds like this well-oiled machine we, we highly produced, <laughs> but in fact, it really is thrown together at the last minute. We so, get lucky. We do. Um, Christian and Carolina. So, uh, Christian, I think you're going to start us off. Yeah. Um, I was going to talk about some of the precursor stuff before Carolina went into the, uh, the new story, but um, I want to preface this because I seem to be the, uh, the skeptical curmudgeon guy lately on everything. Um, some of this stuff is still kind of preliminary um, in terms of being able to say for sure that this is exactly what happens. Um, these are what I'm going to talk about real quick is twin studies that look at the gut bacteria. And we've talked about gut bacteria for a while. Um, there's lots of episodes on it. But basically, your body, like most of the weight of your body is bacteria that live in your gut. I think it's, I don't know, it's like 20% or 30% of your body weight is gut bacteria. Um, and they found all kinds of different things that that bacteria influences, drug absorption, body weight, diabetes. I mean, there's a lot of different things that are that could potentially be related to gut bacterial um, complements. So this particular study was looking at whether or not you inherited um, particular bacterial setups from that connected to your genes. And so, of course, they looked at twins, and um, what they found was that if they just looked at the types of bacteria present, identical and non-identical twins 
were basically the same. And um, the reason that they used identical and non-identical twins is because the only variable between them is genetics. Because they're all in the same, um, they have the same exposure. Identical twins have the same exposure to the mother, same mother, same birthing process. They come out at the same time, basically, or close to it. Um, and non-identical twins are the same way, except they don't have the, the shared genetic component. So when they looked at the types of bacteria between the two sets, they found that there was really no difference, that non-identical twins each had a matching set type of bacterial set, and identical twins have the same thing. They have the same, they matched each other. However, what they found was, um, they found that between the non-identical twins and the identical twins, um, the different groups were in higher or lower proportion, and that matched closer in the identical twins than the non-identical twins. So what they found was basically a, a set of bacteria that were differentially up or down regulated based on what they assume to be the genetic component of the people that have them. So some people may be more genetically predisposed to having a healthy gut or an unhealthy gut or at least a specific population of bacteria. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. And I think that it's too early probably too early to use the term healthy and unhealthy. However, this group did that. They went ahead and said, you know what, a lot of these bacteria seem to be related to disease states. So, um, therefore, what they're saying is that, yes, there may be a healthy and an unhealthy gut bacteria proportion ratio based on the genetics of the person. Which that isn't too ridiculously far-fetched. I mean, um, if we were looking at Bayesian statistics, the basic probability of that's probably pretty high anyway. Um, but I'd like to see more data to sort of confirm. This is a hard thing to to confirm right out of the gate, but it is a pretty good start. Um, and what they did find was that one of the most heritable bacteria that they came across. Was I'm going to not pronounce this correctly, so I'm just going to let Carolina cut in and pronounce it for me. Oh, dang it. Put me on the spot. Uh, Christensen LSA. Yeah, we'll go with that. That sounds good. You have a bacteria named after you? I do. <sighs> it's I awesome, do. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they, they found that this bacteria was in higher levels um, in people who have a lower body mass index. And so that's why I'm going to let Carolina take it away. Oh, excellent. BMI. All right. <laughs> 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 All right. So, so, yeah, so this study was uh, published in the journal Cell. Uh, research came out of King's College in London. And uh, it was a twin study. And I just, I, I think twin studies are so cool. They, they actually make me really, really hope that the Germans have thought twins. that too. Everyone knows about Gerbil. All right. Oh, jeez. Sorry. (sighs) All right. Well, (laughs) I just called you a Nazi. I just we're all terrible people. You did, and I'm Polish, and I hope my family didn't hear. Oh my god. Good job, Scott. I am a horrible human being. Sing. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. You love twin Uh, studies. I do. And and on a side note, if you are interested in having twins, you are more likely to have them uh, after the age of 35. You're also more likely to have them if you uh, have had at least three children. You are more likely to have them if you're African-American. Uh, 
if you are a large and tall woman rather than a small woman. So, um, oh, and also with in vitro fertilization. Anyway, okay, so what this study did is they uh, looked at 416 sets of twins, both identical twins and fraternal twins, and they took over a 1,000 fecal samples from these twins and sequenced their... uh, the the genomes of their uh, gut microbes. And like Christian said, that there was a uh, specific type of bacteria, the Christensen LSA, that was uh, more abundant in uh, leaner individuals. And so they didn't stop there. They also uh, transplanted uh, this microbe uh, into mice. And they found that mice treated with the microbe gained less weight than the untreated mice, suggesting that increasing the amounts of the microbe may help to prevent or reduce obesity. Huh. Uh, so, so the researchers are very excited. They say that this is the first study that has uh, definitively uh, shown evidence that uh, the gut microbiome is influenced by your genes, not just by environment and uh, dietary and environmental choices. Um so they're hoping that uh, this will kind of pave the way towards more personalized medicine and coming up with pre, you know, uh, probiotic treatments for people uh, to help increase their chances of staying lean and healthy throughout their life. But like Christian said, it is it is preliminary. Um, what I'm interested in is to see if they're, you know, they're always talking about the good bacteria. And right. I was talking about the ones that are associated with leanness. Um, I haven't seen too much yet about a type of microbe that is more abundant in obese people. So they'll probably have to, you know, if they are developing some kind of probiotic treatments, they'll have to find blends that simultaneously increase whatever the good stuff is and suppress the bad stuff. And right. that's probably a, a very oversimplified way of looking at it because things aren't ever that black and white. <laughs> it's true. I'm sure there are bad ones, but it may also be that that largely it comes down to it's a lack of good bacteria that causes disease states rather than, uh, uh, you know, an excess of bad ones. But who knows, right? We're really right. just at the, the doorstep of this this whole field. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it sounded like. And uh, I know past research has basically shown that lean people have more diverse, more, more diversity of right. uh, bacteria in their guts than obese people. Um, so it sounds like we're not going to get away from a poop pill anywhere in the near future. <laughs> I love it. Scott's paranoia. (laughs) It is. I'm like, can't we find an alternative? We really need to be taking poop pills. Oh, you know, I'm sure once we figure out what's in that poop pill, we can make a cleaner version that's uh, synthesized in the lab. Yes. Instead of drawn from the source. That's true. Well, back in the day, before we learned to synthesize insulin, they used to, I think they got it, was it from cows? I'm trying to remember what the thing was. They just like, like they just ins- they just isolated insulin. Well, that's a tongue twister uh, from <laughs> from cow's serum or something. But yeah, it was. Uh, so you're just kind of injecting yourself with another animal protein. But uh, yeah, and they used to diagnose diabetes by drinking urine. Yes, I know they would taste it. Isn't that gross? Because it was sweet. <laughs> yep. Well, it's up there with poop pills. <laughs> it is. Um, well, cool. So- uh, do we have anything else to add to that? Uh, I just wanted to throw in that twin studies are cool because identical twins share a hundred percent of their genes and, uh, fraternal twins, non-identical twins share about 50%. So it's a really nice model for seeing, um, basically which characteristics are genetically linked and which ones are more environmentally influenced. Indubitably. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. All right. All right.
Now so, you have uh, the whole rest of the time to focus on uh, your story. Yay! <laughs> uh, we're already at 27 minutes, so we're not going to... I'll be lucky if I get two of these in here. So, um, first a we'll question... We'll try not to interrupt. We, Starting we, now. We are all... <laughs> oh, no. Okay, no, wait. No, we'll start now. We are all married, so I have a, uh, a question for each of you, or for both of you. Have you ever thought of murdering your spouse? God, Don't no. worry. This is just between us. <laughs> yeah, just between us and I don't know people in New Jersey and mm. England and you know whatever. Yeah, but Seattle. none of our spouses listen to this. It is true. That is true. <laughs> he did in the beginning and then he gave up. As on a matter of fact, um, almost everyone I know universally ignores the show. <laughs> <laughs> not just not just direct family members. Um, <sighs> so I'm guessing the answer, at least publicly, is going to be no. Uh, well, right. apparently, a lot of people have thought of doing it, and some of them got them pretty creative. Uh, if you think, well, on the non-creative side. Uh, Spectrum. I remember last year, the girl, uh, Jordan Lynn Graham, she was having an argument. She was unhappy with her marriage. And just a week after she got married, she was on a hiking trip with her husband and she pushed him off a Montana cliff. Do you guys remember this one? No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They just, so that falls into a traditional murder scheme, but some people get more creative. So, Pittsburgh citizen and laboratory manager Robert Furnate, he was just convicted earlier this week of fatally poisoning his wife with, drumroll, cyanide he called the ambulance late one night and he said my wife is unresponsive um the ambulance came they found a bag of creatine next to her don't worry um we'll get to that later which he had said she'd been using to get pregnant and um they carted her off to the hospital where she was generally unresponsive three days later she died so um what happened here it got me thinking. I'm like, cyanide. We all know of cyanide, but how does it actually kill you? This is a fun fact here. So it's actually been used since Rome. Cyanide's been used because it naturally occurs in a lot of plants and stuff. And if you if you if you concentrate it, you can get a lethal dose. And it's been a it's been a poison of choice. That and hemlock for for thousands of years. And the Nazis famously used it uh, in the concentration camps. As a matter of fact, as a gas, it's it's just as deadly as phosgene gas, which is insanely poisonous. So so it's some bad stuff here. And uh, part of the reason is that cyanide is readily diffusible through the epithelium, and this contributes to its lethal toxicity after inhalation. Like if you have hydrogen cyanide gas, which will go through the lungs, or if you actually ingest it, because your epithelium is are the cells that line your blood vessels, and so. So when it gets in your body, it can kind of just diffuse through that, get into your blood, where it has access to all of your, all of your cells at that point. So, so that's part of what makes it so poisonous here. And although cyanide is known to bind and active inactivate a lot of different enzymes, basically what how it's going to kill you. Its method of action is that it um, uh, it, it ultimately uh, binds to cytochrome um, cytochrome C. And it stops aerobic respiration of the cell here. And so what it does is it competitively inhibits the function of cytochrome C, which results in this chemical asphyxiation of the cells here. It works in a similar uh, method as methanol. Um, if you accidentally drink some moonshine um, and it gets into your cells rather than a good alcohol, then it is going to uh, it is going <laughs> A to good stop. alcohol. Yes. Oh, they're all, <laughs> like yes. There's only one good alcohol, ethanol. And um, and so so in a similar to that path. So and if you ever wonder why 
side note, if you ever wanted to know why you actually need oxygen to live, why we need it to breathe, uh, cytochrome C is your answer here. Your, your mitochondria are the powerhouse of your cells, which most of you learned long before you were grown-ups. But what you may not remember is the cytochrome C thing. So inside the mitochondria, you have what's called an electron transport chain, and you transfer electrons to an oxygen molecule, and then this converts it into molecular this molecular oxygen into two different water molecules. And this is actually gives a lot of energy to the cell, and it's that it's that conversion of oxygen to water it uses that energy to create atp and we all know atp adenosine triphosphate is 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 really what allows your cells to live it, it's our it's the ubiquitous energy source throughout the body here so that's why you actually need oxygen um so the binding of cyanide to cytochrome C prevents this electron transport chain and you and the cytochrome can't transfer those electrons to the oxygen. So the end result is inefficient ATP production and eventually cell death. In essence, though, this is kind of a, a sad way of thinking about it. You are you are drowning in very, very slow motion when you get cyanide poisoning. And rather than dying from a lack of oxygen, you're actually dying from your ability not to use that oxygen. So not very pleasant. Um, LD50, which is the lethal dose 50%, which means this is probably about how much it's going to take to kill you, is about one milligram per kilogram. And that's not a lot, but it's also not that little either. And that's why this is actually, believe it or not, been, it's been a popular choice for slow decent people. Yeah, you can give someone a large <laughs> dose of cyanide, and they're going to die very quickly. But if you sprinkle a little in someone's coffee uh, every morning for a few months, they're going to die very slowly. And if you look at the the symptoms list, you can understand why why um, why people don't know they're dying of cyanide. Prominent early signs and symptoms include uh, transient hypernia, hyperpnea, excuse me, that's actually taking deeper breaths, um, headaches, dyspnea, um, uh, uh, which is shortness of breath, and um, also, uh, there are central nervous system issues, you get excited, you have more anxiety, there are personality changes, there's agitation, this eventually will lead to seizures. If you think about all those symptoms, if they are slowly coming on over time, you might just go to the doctor and be like, you know, I just don't feel right, I'm getting headaches, they might do an MRI, it's harder to breathe. If you don't think you're getting poisoned by cyanide, there's this looks like a hundred other disorders and so you're probably the doctor's not going to be thinking about it too much so now back to the creatine right so if you remember his wife was found dead with a bag of creatine next to her apparently some people use this and i don't know what method of action they're 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 claiming this works through but they use it to get pregnant the nih says this doesn't work and it actually can be dangerous so what creatine does is it is and this is why people use it when they work out especially weightlifters is it increases levels of atp in your body um through this cytochrome c process here and uh high levels of atp can actually allosterically inhibit cytochrome c oxidase binding um which which will if you remember how this uh, cyanide is killing you this is actually fairly in the in the same pathway here it both has to do with cytochrome c it's both mitochondria so it makes sense that if if you're trying to hide a cyanide murder you say well my wife was taking a lot of creatine look at that you know what i mean right and and if assuming they have a loving relationship or a supposed loving relationship and nobody's questioning it it just looks like this tragic you know uh unfortunate event that happened oh my gosh she did too much and and now and now unfortunately she ended up killing herself here but um so um 
And that's probably why he chose this method because it's not that hard to wait, not that hard to get away with, and nobody's looking for it here. And uh, while it's actually your when your body can break down cyanide naturally, and there's tons of metabolites from it, so if you're looking for it, it's actually pretty easy to find. And cyanide poisoning is is really easy to identify, and uh, you can even just to tell from a urine sample if someone's getting cyanide poisoning. But again, if you're not looking for it, you're not going to know. I mean, remember these diffuse symptoms. It's just like, you know. Um, yeah, headache, slight personality change, not feeling off, excitability. You know, you know, if nobody's going to be looking for it here. So, um, and if you're wondering, well, maybe it was the creatine. Uh, this is people always have a fatal flaw here. As I said, that this this Fernate guy, he worked in a lab. He was actually a lab manager. Well, one day before she fell ill, he ordered a half pound of cyanide on the lab credit card. Uh, <laughs> people are dumb. Whoops. <laughs> and um, at the time the order was placed, there were actually no projects in the lab that would use cyanide because it's a common lab chemical for these uh, for a lot of mitochondrial studies. People use cyanide, but they weren't using it at the time, so that was kind of uh, unfortunate for him. So it looks like he just gave her a pretty high dose. He didn't slow this out. He got the cyanide, took a bag home, put it in her dinner. She was dead that night or the next day, you know, or she was at the hospital the next day. So uh, good times. Wow. And as I was researching this at 6 a.m. today, looking up um, uh, cyanide pharmacokinetics and and how do you kill people with cyanide, I realized that if the police ever went through (laughs) my Google search history for the things I look for on this show, it'd be like, um, Mr. Barnett, so uh, you were looking at cyanide pharmacokinetics at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning while your (laughs) wife slept. Do you want to explain that? And I'm like, it's for a podcast. (laughs) Podcast, I swear. Right. So uh, the only way I could get rid of of killing my wife would like if like she was pushed in front of a bus while I was like 100 miles away. If it's anything unusual at all, I'm going to jail for the rest of my life. I'm pretty convinced of that. So. So good times, good wow. times. Scott, I love that segment. We need to bring this thing back. It's awesome. Yay. Um, well, let's see. How deep are we into this show right now? We're at 37 minutes. I can do this one quick because I push it off for two weeks and I want to talk about it here. So uh, this is an article from New Scientist here. And when I saw this article, I was like, huh, how come I hadn't thought of that before? That actually makes sense here. And the question really was is why don't plants get, you know, uh, leaf cancer? or skin cancer, or whatever you want to call it here. They are exposed to extremely high levels of radiation, uh, bombarded, one might say, every single day, continuously. Imagine a cactus in, in the desert. How long would you last in the desert before you got skin cancer? Uh, if you if you live in Las Vegas, just look at the cactuses out there. You would get skin cancer in a matter of days if you just stayed outside. So what makes plants so special? Well, it turns out the answer is something called synapate esters, which plants use to defend against the sun. These are aromatic compounds, and they sit in the upper cell layers of these plants' leaves. Um, and this one specific type called synapoil malate, uh, they provide the bulk of this UV sun uh, protection here. There was a team led by Timothy Zwire at Purdue University, and um, they probed how this actually works here. And what they did is they identified that there are very specific wavelengths of this cinepoil uh, malate that intercepts. And it actually, uh, and, and they found this out by they cooled the substance to near zero temperatures in this argon gas to stop it from evaporating. And they basically were just measuring this one chemical's ability to block UVB rays, which are the main uh, 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 
um, rays, uh, UV rays that give you give you cancer here. And um, if you remember, we've talked about this a few times here, but the reason you you actually get cancer from the sun is that UV rays are more powerful than your general visible light rays here. And when they penetrate the the the, the cell and they hit DNA, they tend to break the DNA. There's enough energy for them to actually do that here. Now, your cell is very, very good at repairing broken DNA. It's something it does all the time. But unfortunately, if you have uh, you, you have A, T, C, and G, which makes up your genome here, and if you have two Ts next to each other, two thymines right next to each other, and a UV ray breaks one of those, they will tend to fuse together. So rather than uh, the, the, they'll form this unreversible covalent bond these two t's right next to each other and your body unfortunately just has a very hard time repairing this and if it happens to break that in the right spot it be, it, it, it it you start making proteins that allow for uh for for un, uncontrolled cell division and you get metastases and all this sort of fun stuff here so um it turns out it's this one protein that the cell makes in plants that that absorbs a bulk of these here and um, it's very effective at blocking out. And what's funny is that, you know, they, they were saying that the plants don't show any signs of, of the UV damage by the light. So, so, so you're naturally would think that, well, wouldn't this be great for like a sunblock, right? And they give the most unsatisfying answer ever in the article, which is Zwire has no plans to develop it into a sun cream ingredient. <laughs> and that's what it was. Yeah. Um, instead, he says the finding could be used uh, could be useful for developing plants that are even more resistant to UV radiation. Um, and something you know, if if you want to grow a, a more heat resistant plant. As a matter of fact, we have people here at the University of Nevada Reno that are trying to do drought tolerant uh, uh, wine grapes. And so it's kind of a similar idea to which, and maybe this protein would actually be useful in the sense that you're less likely to have evaporation from the plants if you're more uh, resistant to the UV damage. So maybe that's something they'd be interested in. But the fact is, is that it's nice to put these genes into plants and then you can you can grow things where they normally wouldn't want to grow here. But why wouldn't you want, I mean, we're, we live in such, like everyone loves like this, and especially people using a lot of, of, uh, of uh, um, not sun, what they call it, sun cream, uh, sunblock. Um, that you an all natural sunblock, you know what I mean? This comes from plants. Like why this seems like a gold mine just waiting to be to be tapped into. I don't know why they are not developing it. Can you imagine going to, you know, Whole Foods, all natural sunblock, same as used in by Mother Earth and plants. You know what I mean? Like you would I I, I I'm confused to be honest with you. This seems like a such a natural transition. Yeah, that's surprising. They'd be very, very curmudgeonly scientists who love plants more than people. I know, and those are weird people. I know a few of them. Yes, plant people, plant people. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's plants. So, you're gonna talk about uh, the gain of function too? Oh, should we just should we just do, do the home run here? We're only at 42 minutes. <laughs> All right. So this do was it. from sciencemag.org, and the question was: um, Should the U.S. halt funding for new risky virus studies um, in their and the idea is that should scientists be allowed to create mutant viruses that are deadlier than kind of the naturally occurring ones? And then White House, just uh, this would have been, what, three or four weeks ago now, they kind of waded into this controversial topic today, and they announced that they were going to cut all funding for these studies um, and they until they had a group actually look at it and determine if it's a good idea to be making these very, very deadly viruses here. 
so what they said is that it's halting all funding for so-called gain-of-function studies after uh, um, that alter pathogens to make it more transmittable or deadly so that experts in the U.S. government can basically look at policy decisions to decide if, if this is something that they want to do here. Now, if you remember, um, if you scroll down here, there was... Um, Hold on here. There we go. So we talked about this like way back, like if you're a true fan of the show, like episode one. I actually think this was the first episode here. And this was nearly uh, two years ago where they, they, someone was able to make H5N1, which is the avian flu, and they were, able to, they were able to change it to make it be able to be spread via air between ferrets. And uh, they were getting ready to publish this, and the government stepped in and said, "You can't publish this. You're giving a, you are giving a step-by-step guide to terrorists to how to make something that's not that deadly more deadly, and uh, they're going to use it against us." And that was the whole thing. And I think they ultimately were allowed to publish it, but they had to pull some of the methods a little bit here. So. Um, the idea is with any gain of function is that, you know, you have gain of function and naturally the other side is you've got loss of function here. And if you have a gain of function, we'll use Ebola as an example. And honestly, this may actually have been the impetus for this whole thing. But uh, Ebola, as we're finding the more and more we study it, is actually a little harder to transmit between people than we thought. Now, once it gets in you, you're in a world of hurt, as we all know from the constant barrage of media attention to this. But actually getting it if someone coughs in a room they're saying it's very unlikely to be transmitted if you um shake someone's hand it's unlikely to be transmitted it's through direct body fluid contacts that you're able to transmit it so if you were a scientist in a lab a very logical question even though most people may think this is weird is say well how do we make it more deadly if we figure out how to make it airborne then we can learn how to create a drug to uh, or we can learn a therapeutic or we can learn something to do to make it to be able to combat it once it becomes airborne. You know, all these viruses, they one of the hallmarks of a virus is that it, it changes genetics very, very, very rapidly. And so we kind of, in order to get one step ahead of these viruses, we will actually mutate them to the point that they become highly virulent, highly deadly. And then we're like, okay, so how are we going to tackle this? So now if it makes this mutation at this point here, it's airborne. So how are we going to develop a drug to combat this at this point here? And it's a way to kind of get ahead of the problem. Well, as we'd mentioned with the whole terrorist thing, uh, Making it's very, very hard to keep anything a secret. And if you're in a lab and you create a very, very deadly pathogen, uh, the chances of it staying secret and having nobody know or reproduce it is extremely low. I mean, one of the hallmarks of all science is to make your research reproducible by other scientists. And so if you're making something very bad, others will probably know about it. And, and that means that the bad guys might potentially know about it. And so this got the White House really concerned. Um, and so now they've convened a panel, you know, they're basically using, um, uh, the, the, the NIH and, um, the, where's, what's the other group doing this? Um, trying to remember here. Anyways, they're, they have a panel and, uh, the office of science and technology at the white house said, well, we got to basically, you know, look at, we, if we want to do gain of function studies and flus and SARS and MERS and all this sort of stuff here. And, and, uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? Should we, is this a bad thing? Um, well, I have, my concern is that there has, and this may blow people's minds, but I looked this up the other day just to confirm it. There has never in the history of human infectable or human infectious viruses where one has moved from a droplet to an airborne 
transmission vector. Never, ever, ever happened. Not one time. Right. So people sit around and they think, oh, it's just a, a droplet away from being airborne. No, it isn't. <laughs> it's never actually happened. It is, it is an evolutionary, I don't want to say a dead end, but it is a significant switch um, for a virus to go from one transmission mode to the other. Not impossible, of course, because nothing is impossible, but it isn't this like ticking time bomb waiting to happen tomorrow kind of um, thing that people sort of envision it as. Well, you mean naturally, right? I mean, artificially. Right, 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 right. So, I mean, I guess it would be great to study what would happen if it became airborne and so on and so forth, but truly the odds of that happening are borderline zero. So do you think it's irresponsible to be making something that is, is unlikely to become airborne to make it airborne for others to replicate? Um, I don't know. But what I'm saying is that it isn't – it is more of a basic science question than a, a – a, like a, a deadly need. Like we don't need to know right now what's – what makes it airborne We're, we'd be much better served finding just a cure for it in general right um, and my, so if there's a huge is, risk yeah. to doing to making it airborne i don't see the the benefit as directly you know what i mean right other than the well, scientific curiosity right Go which ahead, i mean I'm, well, science, scientific curiosity and and also just because in the u.s we're kind of stopping it doesn't mean that the rest of the world is going to stop doing this type of research you think it's like an ostrich in the sand sort of thing here yeah uh head and I, I, I don't know i don't know that setting a good example is necessarily going to change the mind of every other nation or it might even spur someone like china to double down on it they're like they're not even looking at this this is our it's an open field for us we're not even competing with anyone at this point you know what i mean right right so so in my mind you know the, the more you know the more i guess protected you can be you know like if, if you just stick your head in the sand like you said then you're not prepared to combat that if it's weaponized yeah you bring up a good point that's true yeah um yeah it's just i don't know i i'm such on the fence here i i tend to think it's a good thing ultimately because very few it's not very often that knowledge leads to worse things and to carolina's point uh it's kind of like from in my in my personal opinion from the second we started being curious non-primate something like the atomic bomb was inevitable because <laughs> we just keep going the next step here and once we started learning about you know fusion and fission and all these sort of things it, it's it's the way our brains think is how are we going to weaponize this you know what i mean so it's like it's it's inevitable now what they're one of the things is they said here is they're not necessarily going to stop permanently all this research they wanted to put a break on the brakes on and they wanted to convene a panel to say how are we going to do this if we're going to do this and because i think part of the problem is is that scientific labs often especially academic scientific labs operate with protocols that are not at all uh, in in mind uh, in line with keeping secrecy now if you have a private lab they tend to be that way because they don't want trade secrets getting out and but if you work in any academic lab i mean geez you can go through almost any lab in the country that i've been to 
when computers are left on. They're not locked. They're on shared <laughs> networks that other labs can access. And believe me, I, I think any hacker with that cared at all could probably hack into almost any university and get almost any file they wanted because there's just not an emphasis on secrecy like that because we're not looking at anything that is um, that deadly. So I think what one of the main things is they want to be like, well, if you're going to be working on such deadly things, do we need to have very strict protocols in place to how you handle the data, how you publish the data? And I think that's hopefully is their, is their bigger concern because, you know, if you think about like, uh, you know, when they discovered the radio wave, right? Nobody, it was such basic research and nobody, everyone, they're like, hey, congratulations, you found out what a radio wave is. Now go back to your nerd hole science geek. But ultimately, <laughs> like... You can't talk on a cell phone without your radio wave. You know what I mean? So who knows what we may be doing these weird abstract gain of function experiments here, but it may lead to a complete breakthrough in some sort of tertiary field here that we don't know about. So that's why that's in the general importance of all basic research here. So just to cut off the leg of one section here, and we'll say this gain of function studies may have unanticipated negative consequences down the line, too. So I don't know. I say study away. Yes, but to do it carefully. <laughs> Just <laughs> be careful about it. Right, right. Whew. That's wow, good times. Show, guys. I know. Good I've, times. Um, good times. Well, shoot. Well, we're back on the wagon. All right. Nice. Science yeah. wagon. Yeah, science, science wagon. wagon. <laughs> I have to actually get back on the real science wagon. You do. Like... <laughs> you, we have a test on Tuesday. Yeah. I know. And I always bring up to Christian that this is the last test I will ever have to take for an official class wow. <laughs> or second to last test. It's my last cl- official class in, in grad school. So I'm very, very happy. Yeah. I hate Yay. you, kid. <laughs> All right. So uh, who am I? Who, can I put both of you on the spot and you can tag team a summary Christian. here? Christian does it. I, I have no idea. Um, and that's our show. <laughs> yeah. Bacteria is bad. Sometimes it's good. Cyanide's bad, especially in your mouth. I don't know. <laughs> we, we need Dell as a pitch hitter. Choose, we just need to... landscaping plants carefully. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, um, all right. Well, yay. We're all back. We're a team. Um, if you want your voice heard, you can always email us, and we will say nice things about you. And um, if you say nice things about us. That's how it works. Follow us on the Twitter. We're at Beta Sandwich. Uh, if you want to post something that you want us to talk about, you can do that on Twitter, or you can do it on Facebook. We're at ba- we're uh, Beta Sandwich Podcast on on uh, Facebook. So just do your thing. And as we always beg and plead, and nobody listens, we love the nice emails, but we also really, really want some more comments on the old iTunes machine to help push us up in the science podcast feeds too so people are more likely to discover us. So uh, do us that small favor and we will love you forever. Long time. Love you long time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Peace. Poop.